Egypt in the Time of Pharaohs is presented in partnership with Adventure World. Iri Nini en Chen em Tamaki Payengahira. I make a welcome for you in the Auckland War Memorial Museum. You are about to embark on a journey from New Zealand to Egypt, from Aotearoa to Tameri or Kemet or Tawi, the beloved land, the black land, the two lands. Ancient Egypt has many names, and the stories that flow from this country are as numerous as the desert sands. Hi there, my name is Dominic Perry. I am the host of the History of Egypt podcast, a weekly audio show charting the history of Egypt and its people, from the earliest days of prehistory and the creation by the gods, all the way to the age of Cleopatra and the Roman Empire. Over 3,000 years and more, Egypt is a country rich in stories, history, art, and monuments. Their temples of stone, their treasures of gold, their pyramids, their homes, all these and more are preserved in the dry, desert landscapes of northern Africa. For the past 10 years, the History of Egypt podcast has been exploring and uncovering these tales. Today, it is my great privilege to welcome you to Egypt in the Time of Pharaohs, in conjunction with Auckland War Memorial Museum, Tamaki Payengahira. The exhibition is a joint venture between Lokschuppen Rosenheim, the University of Aberdeen Museums, the Roma und Pelizaeus Museums Hildesheim and Museums Partner Austria. Here, you will find many treasures and tales from this ancient land. Over the next 30 minutes, I will bring you face to face with some of the people and subjects you will see in the exhibit. Life stories, preserved in artifacts and art, tell us about the world of the ancient Egyptians, their daily business, their hopes and dreams, their fears, and their efforts to attain the greatest of prizes, immortality and eternal remembrance in the hereafter. As we begin our journey, we will witness many unusual ideas, but although they seem strange, they come from a recognisable place, the human heart and mind, and its exploration of our world. So, let your memory wander into the past. Let us visit the ancient Egyptian kingdom. Ancient Egypt is unfathomably old, but its people are far closer to you than you may think. And what better symbol to bridge the modern world with the past than a cat? Lords of the internet, cats dominate our social media like no other animal. Well, the ancient Egyptians treated them with a similar adoration. Our exhibition begins with a beautiful statue. It is made of bronze, a mix of copper and tin and it bears a slightly hungry expression. Presumably, the sculptor has already fed the animal, but it wants more. The statue, of course, is a cat, and this image is a perfect introduction to the world of ancient Egypt. The Egyptian word for a cat is mew, 
which is exactly as it sounds. They named these animals after the sound they make when communicating with humans. The mew, or cat, is one of many animals that the Egyptians kept as pets. They also had dogs, ducks, and monkeys. But of all those animals, the cat is easily the most famous. Think of Egypt and you probably imagine cats, lounging on couches, strutting through temples, purring in the laps of pharaohs and queens. Fair enough, cats and Egypt go together like the Nile and the desert. In fact, I'd even wager that you imagine the Egyptians worshipping cats, treating them as gods with all due respect. The truth is a bit more complicated. The statue here comes from a later period in Egyptian history, approximately two and a half thousand years ago. It depicts a goddess, whose name is Bast. Bast, or Bastet, is a powerful deity. She gave fertility to men and women, and she protected humans from danger. With this in mind, people would make offerings to Bast. They gave food, drink, cosmetics, and even statues to the goddess. This statue is one of those gifts. Two and a half thousand years ago, somebody bought the statue as a gift for the great deity. Maybe they were hoping for a child, or they wanted a cure from some illness. Maybe they were afraid of malevolent spirits or demons, and wanted Bast's protection. Whatever their motive, the ancient person offered this statue to the goddess. Made of bronze, this image was expensive, so the problem must have been quite serious. But in the calm face of this cat, you see the reflection of ancient human concerns. The desire for safety, for comfort, for children, and for life. Beyond its human dimension, the cat also reveals something about time. When the sculptor fashioned this image, Egypt had already been a kingdom for two and a half thousand years. The great pyramids themselves were two thousand years old, and famous pharaohs like Tutankhamun and Ramesses the Great had been dead for 800 years. The Greeks were rising to prominence, but the Romans were only just getting started. Alexander the Great was still centuries away. And yet, the Egyptian gods and their temples stood as they had for millennia. The Nile Valley and its civilization is one of the oldest on Earth. Welcome to Ancient Egypt. So we've met our first symbol of ancient Egyptian culture. Cats were a popular part of their world. The question is, who created that world? The ancient Egyptians are famous for their religion, one of the largest and most complicated in history. As you move deeper into the exhibition, you'll get a chance to meet some of the gods. The ancient Egyptians had thousands of gods. Or... Maybe one god with thousands of faces. It's complicated. Scholars debate the intricacies and nuances of the ancient belief. But one thing we know for sure. The Egyptians created a huge variety of images and ideas to describe these immortal beings. One of the greatest was Nut, who appears in the exhibition on a coffin. Nut is a goddess. She ruled the sky her body, twinkling with stars, adorned the ceilings of temples and tombs, and also the lids of coffins. Nut protected the dead, 
and even the gods themselves travelled safely through her domain. When you fly aboard an aircraft, or take a rocket into space, it is Newt that protects you. The great sky goddess has watched over the earth for untold millennia. Another deity of supreme power was Amun-Ra. This male god is a combination of two different beings, Ra, the sun, and Amun, the invisible or hidden one. Together, Amun and Ra formed a composite deity, whom the Egyptians called the Nesut Necheru, the king of the gods. Amun-Ra looks like a human, but he wears a distinctive crown, tall feathers or ostrich plumes adorning a cap. You will find Amun-Ra in this form on the walls of temples. He is one of the most important gods. Beyond Nut and Amun-Ra, you also have deities of the underworld, the land of the dead beyond the western horizon. There is Osiris, the king of the dead, who died and came back to life in ages long past. There is the Apis bull, an animal who lives on earth as the embodiment of the creator. And there is Pitar Sokar, a curious god who combines the majesty of a falcon with the knowledge and wisdom of a creator. These gods, and many others, are symbols and representations of nature. The Egyptians, like many societies, viewed the world around them in symbolic terms. They understood the cycles of earth, wind, water, fire, and time, and they described those forces with animal and human characteristics. The gods of ancient Egypt are a famous bunch, but often misunderstood. Their power inhabited every aspect of creation, and so they took the form of creatures that best represented that power. The speed and violence of a lioness, the soaring majesty of a falcon or hawk, the patience and lethality of a crocodile, the raw strength and virility of a bull. These gods, these statues, are objects of worship, and powerful symbols of the way the ancient Egyptians viewed their world. These deities ruled the land, the sky, and the very essence of reality for over 3,000 years. When you gaze upon these gods, and speak their names, you are connecting with the natural forces of the universe. Now, let's talk about history. When scholars describe Egyptian history, they refer to a distinct phase of human development. The invention of writing and the creation of records are one of the earliest markers of human civilizations. Ancient Egyptian society started developing long before writing, back in the ages of agriculture, nomadic hunting, and wandering, that we call the prehistoric era. But like many ancient cultures, the invention of writing allowed them to mark and record events for decades and centuries. Today, scholars rely upon these writings as the foundation of history. Egyptian writers, whom we call scribes, used a variety of methods to record their information. The simplest tool was a brush with some ink to write on a piece of stone or papyrus paper. Egyptian writing kits survive from many tombs. Some of them are labelled with the names of their owners, and they seem to be treasured possessions of those who could afford them. 
Another tool was the chisel. The hills and deserts of Egypt are littered with rocks and cliffs, bearing the marks of stone carving. Images and hieroglyphs scratched into the rock tell us aspects of ancient life. Traces like these allow scholars to follow the ancient Egyptians on expeditions and journeys into the wilderness. We can see the Egyptians exploring and shaping their environment. Now, some of the earliest hieroglyphs, the earliest writing, deals with kings. Hear the word pharaoh, and you instantly think of Egyptian kings. It is one of their most recognisable words. But where does that term, pharaoh, actually come from? Technically, the word pharaoh is Greek, but it derives from an ancient Egyptian term. Pharaoh is a Greek version of the phrase per a'a. Per a'a translates literally as the great house. The Egyptians used that term, great house, as an abbreviation for the palace and for the king. We do the same thing today. Folks might refer to their national government in a term like the beehive, Downing Street, or the White House. For the Egyptians, the Per A'a, Great House, was the royal palace, the economy and wealth that it controlled, and of course, its ruler. Over the centuries, the term Per A'a slowly became a way to describe the monarch as a person. That is how we get the term Pharaoh. Over their long history, more than 3,000 years, there were at least 170 pharaohs. Some of these people are incredibly famous. And in the fourth exhibition hall, you will meet some noteworthy figures. Allow me to introduce a couple. One pharaoh who deserves recognition is King Sahure. He ruled Egypt around 2500 BCE, approximately 4,500 years ago. By that point, Egypt had already built the Great Pyramids at Giza. And in the time of Sahure, the royal household was expanding their control over Egypt's economy, and they were even exploring new lands. One of Sahure's great achievements was a trading expedition. The king organised a fleet of ships to sail upon the Red Sea. They travelled south, following the coast, all the way to modern Ethiopia and Somalia. The Egyptians called this region Pawenet, or Punt in English. Here, the Egyptians bartered for exotic animal products, including leopard skins, elephant ivory, and monkeys. They bought high-quality wood, particularly ebony, and they purchased incense, fragrant trees that they could plant in temples and gardens. The Egyptians used incense as a smoke to purify the air and please the gods. You will see Sahure making offerings to the gods in this exhibition. Another king who needs no introduction is Khufu. Khufu ruled around 2600 BCE, about 100 years before Sahure. He is one of the definitive pharaohs. It was Khufu's government that commissioned and organised the enormous Great Pyramid. Standing 150 metres tall, with two and a half million blocks of stone, the Great Pyramid is one of Egypt's monumental accomplishments. It is the largest pyramid in the country, and within its elaborate chambers, 
the ancient builders created a sophisticated network of passageways, doors, and rooms. The Great Pyramid remains an object of fascination. Scholars debate the mechanical and organisational features of its construction. Recently, we had a breakthrough in that story, when archaeologists found papyrus relating to the monument. The document is an ancient diary. It belonged to a man named Merer, who worked on the Great Pyramid. Merer and a team of workers delivered building blocks from the limestone quarries to the pyramid construction site. The diary of Merer is a first-hand account of work on the Great Pyramid, and it has added a personal touch to this legendary monument. Khufu himself, the king who commissioned the Great Pyramid, is a bit of a mystery. Later generations remembered him as a harsh, even tyrannical ruler. It's not hard to imagine why. When you stand at Giza, looking up at the towering pyramid, one thing is clear. These monuments were enormous undertakings. Thousands of people laboured in the heat, dust, and danger to raise heavy stones and shape the structure. Injuries and death must have been common, and the scale of this monument was unsurpassed over 3,000 years. One of Khufu's nicer legacies is a ship. In 1954, at Giza, archaeologists found a pit. A deep hole next to the Great Pyramid contained the remains of an ancient boat. The ship had been dismantled by Khufu's servants, and laid carefully in a sealed space. Remarkably, archaeologists were able to extract the wood and reconstruct the ship using the hieroglyphs and markers that the ancients had written. Khufu's vessel is an enormous ship of cedar wood. That was expensive. The Egyptians had to import cedar from Lebanon. So Khufu's ship was a lavish investment. We're actually not sure if the king ever used it. The boat might be ceremonial for his funeral, or it might be a magical ship meant to convey his soul to the sky and stars. Scholars debate the exact function of the boat, but one thing we know for sure. The Khufu ship, to this day, is a magnificent piece of ancient carpentry and design. Of course, we can't talk about pharaohs without mentioning Hatshepsut, the female pharaoh, one of the rare women to wield authority and reign as a king. There are many times in Egyptian history when influential women led the government, but most of them did not use that title, king. Hatshepsut did. Around 1500 BCE, about a thousand years after Khufu, Hatshepsut grew up in the royal palace. She was a princess, the daughter of a king and queen. She married her brother, or half-brother, named Tutmos II. And together, they became king and queen of Egypt in their own right. But Hatshepsut's brother did not reign long. He died unexpectedly, leaving a gap in the royal house. When Tutmos died, he left a son, who was Hatshepsut's stepson or nephew. This boy was just a baby, unable to rule for himself. So, for a few years, Hatshepsut acted as the regent. She wielded power, directed the government, and acted on behalf of the child king. That did not last. Eventually, Hatshepsut started to call herself the king of Egypt, 
the Nisut Beati, and she commissioned art, including statues, that depicted her as a man. Hatshepsut is one of history's first gender-bending rulers. She swapped her physical sex for a political image of masculine authority. For more than 15 years, Hatshepsut, the female king, commanded royal power. In her reign, Hatshepsut achieved great things. She organized a new trading fleet to the land of Punt, just like Sahure a thousand years before. She also commissioned some truly impressive and world-famous monuments. The Temple of Karnak still has obelisks that she erected. And there is the fabulous temple of Deir el-Bahri, a stone terrace that Hatshepsut built to honour herself, her father, and the great gods. The temple at Deir el-Bahri is one of Egypt's most distinctive monuments, and its design, including a facade of columns in a straight line, may have influenced later Greek monuments, like the Parthenon of Athens. If that is accurate, there is an architectural connection between Hatshepsut's temple and the Auckland War Memorial Museum. Hatshepsut is an uncommon figure in the male-dominated lineage of the pharaohs, but she set a template for mighty queens to come. Hi there. I hope you are enjoying the story so far. This episode comes to you on behalf of the Auckland War Memorial Museum, Tamaki Payengahira. You may be interested to learn about the benefits that come with an Auckland Museum membership. The membership program at Auckland War Memorial Museum offers a range of exclusive rewards. These include unlimited entry to all paid exhibitions, exclusive previews and after-hours events, free general admission to the museum, and even discounts at the cafes and museum stores. You can also enjoy priority booking, email newsletters, and discounts at cinemas and participating locations. It is the very best way to elevate your experience of Auckland's wonderful collection. To learn more, follow the link in the episode description, or stick around at the end of the episode. By now, you have visited the two lands, met its gods, and some of its rulers. But it's time to meet the other Egyptians, the ordinary folk who made this society run. Pharaohs and deities are powerful and splendid, but they could not exist without the millions of people who called Egypt home. How did they live? What was important to them? Let's find out. First, let's talk about sacred spaces. Most notably, temples for the gods, and cemeteries for the dead. Up and down the Nile Valley, you can visit sprawling temple complexes and vast cemeteries. These structures, and the people who built them, tell us a great deal about the ancient society. In fact, scholars probably know more about Egyptian religion and funerary culture than any other aspect of their world. At sites like Amana, we can see huge temples to the sun, called Ra or Aten. These temples are open to the sky, so that the rays of the sun can bathe the temple and the worshippers. Archaeologists have uncovered the foundations of these monuments, and artistic scenes carved on the walls of tombs reveal the worship and the praise that happened in these buildings. 
The priests who serviced the temples are an interesting group. They show up really early in history, and they remained one of the most prestigious jobs for an Egyptian to do. The priests maintained the statue of the god. They changed its clothing every day. They offered flowers, food and drink. And they sang songs or hymns to praise the great deities. Priests and the worshippers made the Egyptian temples come alive. They turned these buildings of stone into halls of music, cooking and life. It was their job to keep the deities happy. Now, we know a lot about ancient monuments, their public buildings. But 99% of Egyptian life was conducted in the home and the fields. The day-to-day business of ancient life was remarkably similar to our own. Their technology was different, but the priorities remained the same. Every Egyptian wanted to earn enough to feed the family, to make sure they had clothes to wear at work, and play. They wanted to possess a few ornaments or trinkets for special occasions at display. And of course, they wanted to maintain their personal hygiene. Supposedly, the Egyptians were very fond of staying clean, smelling nice, and living well. According to the archaeological record, the ancient Egyptians were fastidious with their hygiene. They plucked hair with tweezers, decorated their skin with makeup and paint, they combed out their hair, or wigs, and in some cases, they might even shave all of their body hair. Egyptian women used sanitary items during menstruation, And ancient writings speak about women undergoing a purification at their time of bleeding. Archaeologists have found many of these items in their tombs. Ancient jugs held traces of wine or beer, and cosmetics like face creams made from fat and oil. We have traces of their perfume and eyeliner, their clothing and jewellery, and even underwear has been found in these tombs. In short, The ancient Egyptians were humans. Their lives followed the same rhythms as our own. And when you gaze on these personal items, it is easy to see how much you have in common with their daily life. Many of these artifacts come from tombs. The Egyptians are famous for their elaborate graves. Wall paintings in hidden chambers depict their lives as they wanted to enjoy them. We see on the walls of monuments ancient Egyptians enjoying banquets. They shovel food into their mouths and gulp down wine. They watch musical performances, dancers, and acrobats, and they indulge in the daily pleasures of life. The elaborateness of ancient Egyptian tombs has given rise to a misconception. Many people imagine that the Egyptians were obsessed with death, that they looked forward to it or embraced it. The truth is, the Egyptians loved life. They rejoiced in vitality and daily pleasures. They wanted that life to continue forever. Their tombs, filled with elaborate art and physical objects, were vehicles intended to achieve immortality. They imagined that following their physical death, they would awake in the next world to enjoy an afterlife of limitless pleasures without suffering or hardship. Of course, on Earth, the Egyptians recognized the inevitable. Every human would come to a moment of physical death. At that point, they imagined the soul would pass to the west, beyond the sunset, and into the kingdom of Osiris. This religious belief, and their hope for immortality, 
encouraged them to create one of their most famous products. Ancient Egypt is world-renowned for its funerary literature, an elaborate corpus of texts and art that describe the underworld and the land of the gods. The most famous example of this is the Book of the Dead. That is actually a modern name. The ancient name for this book is The Book of Going Forth by Day. The book is a guide to the underworld, including its different areas, the beings who live in those areas, and even the threats that the dead must face. The Book of the Dead showed a soul the proper way to reach the kingdom of Osiris. There, they would stand in judgment for their deeds on earth. If they had acted well, honouring the gods, respecting the dead, and obeying the pharaoh's law, they would enjoy entrance to paradise. The Egyptians called paradise Iaru, or the field of reeds. It was a world of infinite farms, sunlight, water, and sustenance. At least, that was the reward for a good soul, a person who had followed the rules on earth. For a bad soul, there was a most terrible punishment. Those who failed the test, who had lived dishonestly or broken the laws, they were punished with total destruction. A deity or demon would consume their soul and remove them entirely from existence. The Egyptians feared destruction. Destruction of the body, destruction of the soul. To overcome that threat, they invented tools like mummification. They preserved the physical form of the body on earth, and they used coffins and sarcophagi to protect that body. They used hieroglyphs, amulets, statues, and images to protect their tombs from plunder. They even had servants. Wealthy Egyptians would often take Shabti figures into the next world. These Shabtis would come to life in the underworld, and they would work on behalf of their owner. Shabtis would farm the fields, carry the water, milk the cows, and manage the home. That way, the soul of an honest person could enjoy an afterlife of relaxation and pleasure. Imagine a resort holiday, lasting for eternity. The Egyptians' fear of destruction and their obsession with lasting forever drove them to create some of the most beautiful graves and funerary items ever made by humans. A good example in this exhibition is the monument of Senedjem. Senedjem was a royal artist who helped to build tombs for the kings and for privileged families. Senedjem's tomb survives to this day in a village in Egypt. You can go into that tomb and see the art that he painted, the afterlife he wanted to achieve. It is a beautiful monument. I hope Senedjem got there safely. So the Egyptians wanted to live forever in a paradise. But what does that have to do with mummies? Why did the Egyptians create these distinctive preserved bodies? Human societies often develop a form of ceremonial burial, a way of preserving the dead and protecting their body from destruction by nature, decay, or animals. The Egyptians figured out quite early on that the desert landscape was really effective at preserving corpses. Some of the earliest mummies, quote-unquote, are natural mummies, dried out by the sands and salt. Their bodies can survive with even tiny details like hair and fingernails intact. So the Egyptian environment was really effective at preserving their bodies. But over time, 
the Egyptians started to build more complicated tombs. They made artificial chambers and mounds stocked with provisions. The problem with these tombs is that they were removed from the natural preservatives of sand and salt. And as these monuments developed and architecture improved, the ancients realised they needed another way to preserve the physical body. From that, the earliest traces of mummification appear in the Old Kingdom, the age of pyramids around 2500 BCE. The goal, it seems, was to preserve the body in the same manner as a natural desert burial. Over the centuries, mummification became increasingly sophisticated. By trial and error, the ancient artisans figured out what worked and what didn't. The process was surprisingly messy. Even royal mummies of pharaohs and queens can vary significantly in their quality and the methods of preservation. Basically, the technique of mummification changed over time, and different workshops in different communities may have had different approaches. So mummies are quite a varied and fascinating field of study. And thanks to the advances of modern technology, we can examine these bodies without unwrapping them, without disturbing them more than we have to. It is a great advancement for the science. For over 200 years, tourists and scholars have been fascinated by ancient mummified bodies. More than stone or tombs, the well-preserved mummies let us see the ancients face to face. Mummies are uniquely fascinating. They are us, as we might one day be. In the 21st century, the ancient Egyptians may seem like a curious relic. What could they possibly teach us about life? The truth is, the ancient Egyptians grappled with the same questions as we do today. They lived in a delicate ecosystem between the River Nile and the encroaching desert. They worried about water supply and the destruction of their climate. They also grappled with the fundamental questions of human existence. Where do we and the world come from? What is our purpose? How should one behave in life? And what happens after death? Their answers may seem strange, filled with animal-headed deities, elaborate tombs, and hidden chambers. But the purpose of all of that, ultimately, was quite simple. The Egyptians wanted to preserve their bodies, their memories, and create the best possible conditions for enjoying an immortal life. They wanted to live forever, beyond the western horizon. Through this exhibition, you will explore ancient society from its most basic building blocks. You will see their physical environment and the gods that created it. You will meet the animals and explore the climate which shaped their society. You will go through their particular form of government and political organization, the great house or pharaoh. And finally, you will come face to face with their dreams and their hopes for a life beyond the great unknown. As you gaze upon these statues, these models, these images, you see the faces of people just like you. Their art may seem unusual, but look closer. The hint of a smile, the curve of a muscle, the gesture of a prayer, or the hunger of an unsatisfied cat. All of this conveys their fervent wish to live forever and to be remembered. Behind the stone or paint, there is humanity waiting for your recognition. 
For over 3,000 years, the people of ancient Egypt strove to live a worthy life, to surpass the achievements of their predecessors, to make a meaningful impact on their community, and to leave a legacy worthy of recognition and respect. It is a recognisable, even admirable goal for them and for us. Thank you for listening to this introductory journey through Egypt's wonderful history. If you have enjoyed the tale, consider joining the membership program at Auckland War Memorial Museum, Tamaki Payangahira. With an Auckland Museum membership, you can enjoy a range of special rewards. These include free entry to paid exhibitions, exclusive previews and lectures from academics, after-hours events, free general admission to the museum, and even discounts at the cafes and museum stores. You can also enjoy priority booking, email newsletters, and discounts at cinemas and participating locations. A membership is the best way to elevate your experience at Auckland War Memorial Museum. To learn about the full range of perks, follow the link in the episode description, or visit www.aucklandmuseum.com forward slash membership. Once again, that's www.aucklandmuseum.com forward slash membership. Start your journey into history, nature, science, and the universe. Become an Auckland Museum member today and enjoy these wonderful experiences. Once again, my name is Dominic Perry. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy Egypt in the Time of Pharaohs. Egypt in the Time of Pharaohs is presented in partnership with Adventure World.